This is Sound Heights Records Podcast, Session 18, and the song lyric of the day is by Robert Smith. Just try to see in the dark, and just try to make it work, to feel the fear before you're here. I make the shapes come much too close. I pull my eyes out, hold my breath, and wait until I shake. But if I had your faith, then I could make it safe and clean if only I was sure that my head on the door was a dream. I've waited hours for this. I've made myself so sick. I wish I'd stayed asleep today. I never thought that this day would end. I never thought that tonight could ever be this close to me. Welcome to the Sound Heights Records Podcast. Harmonizing life and music, growing as an artist, improving as a person, gaining insight and inspiration, conversations with world-class musicians. Welcome to Sound Heights Records. This is Yisrael Aryeh. So it happens on occasion <laughs> that one gets positive feedback from the universe, so to speak, that what we're doing, let's say, as a musician, as an artist, obviously this can apply in, in other callings and other occupations. But for me, you know, as a musician who's, I would say, a little bit isolated. I'll just say that. I create music in my studio. I've been, you know, creating music for years and collaborating with different musicians. Frankly, these days, I'm in a little different space where the music I'm creating and releasing online, so I feel like there's a much larger potential audience but it's not the same kind of immediate feedback as the days I was playing a lot more live. And that, that's for a variety of reasons. I mean, I keep my chops up, ready for opportunities to come up. Um, I have this podcast that I release now every two weeks, which has been a great anchoring point for the work I do. And having a family and taking care of the family and trying to find the time and the motivation to keep going to build something over time, this is really what this podcast is about, is really finding that balance. I'm in, in a new stage. I took on a lot more work uh, as a teacher, as a, a special ed teacher, which is not so much music related, but in order to just have enough income to support my family, a uh, growing family, thank God. And I'm really fr thankful for them, thankful for the health, uh, thankful for the ability to make income. 
and also thankful for this studio that is a place that I can come um, on evenings or, or days when I have off to keep the project moving, keep this podcast going, keep creating music, keep practicing, working on my skills, be ready for opportunities that come up. And it's the small things, the listeners that I do have and do reach out. And again, I just want to encourage anyone listening that hasn't reached out, you can leave even a review on the iTunes or send me an email at soundheightsrecords at gmail.com. There's many different ways to reach out and that feedback really keeps me going. I really get inspired by knowing that the work I do has a positive impact on somebody else. So after all that, <laughs> that brings me to today's guest. So a few weeks ago, I was in my studio, nothing extra special going on. And I noticed an email and I, I couldn't deal with it right away. The subject line was t-shirt. So I didn't know maybe it was, it was just some spam email or something. But later when I looked more carefully at it, it said that I'm in Brooklyn. I saw your band's t-shirt. That's the Brooklyn Jazz Warriors uh, t-shirt. And I'm leaving for France. Could you ship it to me? How much does it cost? I'm like, oh, that's cool. So I, I started to look up how much it costs to ship to France. And I responded, well, I can get the price. But if you're still in Brooklyn, maybe I could bring it by. And the person, by the way, mentioned that this was Boris Williams, um, ex-drummer from The Cure. So, of course, <laughs> you know, I know who The Cure is. I've, I've been, uh, I say, like I say, a casual fan I mean, I grew up in the 80s. Their music was definitely meaningful to me, but I wouldn't say that I was deeply, deeply into their music then. Um, certainly, since meeting Boris, I've taken a, a deeper dive into their music um, and the lyrics of Robert Smith, as we quoted in the beginning of this episode, which are quite uh, romantic and dark and mysterious. And Boris was a major part of the world of The Cure's music. And he was the drummer from 1984 through 1994, which was kind of a, a really important part of the band's history. They made some of their, their greatest albums, their biggest hits, and music that's really resonated over the years. And Boris contacted me. He happened to be in town for the induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame which included current band members and, and past band members. And the impression I got from Boris was there's really kind of like a family atmosphere with this band, unlike some other bands who have differences of opinion and, and band members cycle in and out. It really seems like the members that have been, while they're in the band, they have really a very strong stake in the band. And even when they leave the band, they're still really a part of the band. So it was really appropriate that all the band members uh, past and present were inducted in this recent hall rock and roll hall of fame ceremony so it turned out that boris was still in brooklyn and i was able to stop by and meet him bring him a t-shirt i brought him also a vinyl copy of a brooklyn jazz warriors album and we were able to sit down and have a really nice conversation i mean he's a really stand-up guy he was really kind and generous with his time and, and sharing of his experiences. It's not, it's not every day you get to meet someone whose music has had an impact in such a major way on so many people. And I've known people over the years who've been extremely impacted 
by The Cure's music and his drumming, which is so intense. And the music itself is powerful and humorous and has a lot of joy to it as well, even within the darkness. It's a really beautiful mixture. It's also just really rocking. <laughs> so it's been a real privilege to have met Boris. And through the course of our conversation, he shares a really unique and interesting story. I mean, a lot of where he came from and how he got to where he is, is really a tale of being in the right place at the right time with the right personality and the right skills. And, you know, in, in contrast to some other interviews that we've had recently where the theme has been how much skill one could develop to grow as a musician, I feel Boris's story really shines a light on such an important element of a certain kind of faith in the process and in the flow. I mean, his first gig that he played in public with a legit blues band, he had never actually sat at the drums before. <laughs> and somehow through his mental practice that he'd done before and through just his fearless attitude, he was able to con convince people that he actually had played drums before successfully. And that led from one thing to another until ultimately he was in one of the great and impactful bands of rock and roll history. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Before we get into that, I just want to mention that this podcast and all of our podcasts and Sound Heights Records music releases are supported and made free of charge by our wonderful patrons. You can join them if you go to soundheightsrecords.com. There's a link to the Patreon page there. You can see also there are all the rewards and things you get as a patron, unreleased tracks, pre-released tracks, etc. So here it is, our conversation with Boris Williams. Yeah, I was just in a, in a coffee shop, a vegan coffee shop uh, called Clementine's in, in Brooklyn. And uh, when my wife and I walked up there, cause we, we searched it out because we're vegans. So. And uh, just noticed this, uh, this woman there with uh, your T-shirt. Um, I thought it looked really cool. I thought oh, it'd be nice to take that back with me to France. I'm going back to France tomorrow. And... Um, so my wife said, look, I'll talk to her and say, where did you get the T-shirt? And she told me that uh, it was uh, given to her by the band. Uh, so uh, so then I took a long shot and uh, sent an email um, just saying, is there any chance you can ship out a, a T-shirt to me out there? And uh, here you are delivering it by hand. So yeah, well, it's my, my pleasure. It's really a pleasure to meet you. You know, I've... Um you know, especially when I, when I meet a musician, especially someone who has had a, a career that spans a lot of different uh, eras and, and has been in the thick of it for for much of that. I just I would like you know I always like to ask at first where 
things all started musically. Like if you go back that far to your music, first musical inspirations, memories. Well, yeah, it does go back a long way. <laughs> That's my age. But um, I, when I first started playing uh, drums, it was kind of in the UK. It was what was called the blues explosion thing was happening then. And um, so I was listening to things like John Mayle, Free and bands like that, which are blues based. And um, you, you grew up in, in where? In, in the UK, in, in, the, in the south of England. Okay. So, um, so yeah, I was in a, living near a small town called Farnham. Um, and uh, when I went to college, uh, I, I saw a, yeah, a poster for, which said blues band need drummer. And um, at that point, I hadn't actually didn't own a drum kit or wasn't hadn't used a drum kit, but I'd worked out how to do it. Um, and so I kind of bluffed my way and I said, well, I'm a bit rusty and I don't have a drum kit, but uh, I'm your man. So they kind of accepted that. And uh, so uh, it was kind of not very organized. We, we're trying to get rehearsals together. We had a gig in a club um, organized, but for some reason, we never got a rehearsal together, but we ended up in the club and we all knew what sort of John Mayle stuff, you know, Peter Green and uh, stuff. And uh, so we ended up playing this support band for another band um, by saying, do you know that, you know, stepping out or that tune or this tune? Yeah, okay, well, and we played it. And at the end of each tune, it'd be like, just general murmur of people thinking, I don't know what we were tuning up or what, but we thought it was a great gig for our first gig. So um, it's kind of in the deep end. And, and then after the gig, I said, hey, you know, I owned up that I've never played the drums before. And they were going, oh, you bastard, you know, but well done, you, you pulled it off. <laughs> so, uh, so it kind of worked out. That's pretty ballsy. I mean, you, so before that, obviously, you've, you've Obviously, you thought about playing it, playing drums. I thought, about, I thought it. about playing. I dreamt about it. I, in my parents' house in the cellar, I used to put on records like Rolling Stones and things like that, and I used my mum's knitting needles on the couch, <laughs> and you know, having watched sort of Charlie Watts or whoever playing on TV, I kind of emanated, you know, emulated uh, what they were doing. So I kind of worked out what to do with my feet and hands before I actually touched a drum kit. So the first time um, you, you touched a drum kit was that gig? Was a gig, yeah. Uh, how old were you then? If you and it, it was actually, it was the, the drum kit belonged to their previous drummer who decided he didn't want to play anymore <laughs> and he wanted to do, be a DJ. So he said, oh, you can use my kit, so. How old were you at the... Well, I was 17, 17 then, yeah. Right. So, so not really that young. I started kind of, I'd, I'd been wanting to think dreaming about being a drummer since about 14 but I was always fascinated uh, with drums I mean when I was a, a child um, I was brought up in um, in Belgrade in Yugoslavia from mm. up till about the age of seven I remember marching bands and I'd just be fascinated by the kind of snare drums and stuff going on and, um, and uh, when I got to England my um, my mother remarried and my stepfather. Um, and then I had a, an album with uh, with pipe bands on it, which, you know, sort of Scottish pipes. Mm -hmm. and, and he came in the room and I was listening to it 
and uh, it was really the drums I was kind of listening to. And he says, "That's really unusual at your age that you like <laughs> you like you like bagpipe music." And I was like, "Didn't say I, I don't really like the bagpipes. It's the drums I'm listening to." You know? So, was there a reason why you didn't get a drum set that whole time, or, or was it just you just didn't come up, or was there like a Restriction yeah, yeah. I mean, I was up up until then. I was going to boarding school, and it's kind of and there was no music lessons or anything like that. It was kind of very limited. And uh, I, when I'd be at home, we were living in the middle of the country. There's so I didn't really meet any you know anyone interested in music or anything until I I got left school and went to college, and then um, it kind of all opened up. So between that first gig on drums and obviously touring the world, <laughs> yeah. Well, after that, it's just kind of a, a a a number of years where I was in and out of bands that would form and break up, and you'd never make any money. And then you know, I moved to London where it was all happening, and I played in lots of different bands. Um, but the that particular first band probably it lasted for me about um, about eighteen months, I think. And then I got offered uh, to join a couple of friends to go sort of to India on a sort of road trip. Hmm. And um, so I kind of just took the opportunity and left the band. And my early claim to fame is that after I left that band, they had Freddie Mercury, who ended up being Queen as their <laughs> singer, you know, but that band sort of uh, disbanded. As well, eventually, and then um, yeah, I, yeah, I came back from that trip, being away about eight months, um, and just started playing with lots of different bands, and then playing some playing some cabaret acts. There's a, a band called the Flirtations, who are three soul singers from North Carolina, hmm. and uh, they had a, a hit in England, uh, top top ten single hit. So they moved to England because they were kind of big fish in mm -hmm. a small pond yeah. there. And so they did a kind of cabaret circuit, which was happening in those at that time. So that was a real kind of um, learning curve for me. And, you know, me and the rest of the band, were, were none of us could uh, read music. We were given mm -hmm. all these, this music written down and, and luckily the keyboard player could read to an extent. So we'd like slaved over these charts mm -hmm before I kind of auditioned for the band and managed to uh, to uh, squeeze through, pretend we could we could read. But it was kind of, I, by doing that, I kind of learned to read music a bit, so it helped, you know. It's another one going in at the deep end, really. Did, did your experience in India inform the music at all? I mean, I, I, was, I noticed um, some, there's some Cure stuff that, that has sitar. Is that, was that at all part, you know, any connection there? Yeah, um, not really, no. I think that's just, yeah. That was a, a lot, a long time later. I mean, yeah. leading up to the queue, I was, I was um, well, I kind of, uh, I was living in London, and um, I'd taken, a, a, you know, it was all this time I wasn't really, I wasn't earning any money. It's kind of hand to mouth stuff. I was playing like in a, in a club <clears throat> in North London, just doing weekends, and I'd get paid ten pounds for two nights, which is. Yeah, just about. I was, I was living in a squat, so I wasn't paying rent at the time. But um, then I got a call. I, was, I, I got a job as a motor, motorbike messenger around London, which is probably mm -hmm. the most dangerous job <laughs> you can take. 
But uh, then I got a call from a guy I'd done a session with, and he said, oh, there's a band called the Thompson Twins who are looking for a drummer, and I, you know, he thought I'd be suitable, so I auditioned for them. So I ended up touring with them, and it was because of that that I, I was happened to be in America at the end of a tour when um, McCure turned up on their on the um, top tour, and their drummer Andy Anderson, who sadly just recently died, yeah. actually, um, had to be sent home because he kind of had a breakdown. And um, so the engineer for the Thompson Twins in the studio was was playing bass with them at the time. And he said, oh, I know Boris is, um, is, is around. Maybe you can corral him to finish the tour. And when they asked me, I was like, oh, no, I've just finished the tour. I, you know, I just want to chill out. But they kind of convinced me. And I went along to the gig with the temporary drummer. And I thought, yeah, this is really what I want to do. Because it was um, Thompson Twins were uh, doing using a lot of tape. What was in that in, in those days was tapes mm-hmm. with, with back backing singing and and keyboards and stuff. So I was playing along to a click. Yeah, so I was playing along to a click. And it was on tape, yeah, <laughs> which would sometimes slow down because right. it would <laughs> get too hot. And um, so, uh, so you know, it was really refreshing to to play with The Cure, which was just kind of so much more freedom. Hmm. In, and um, at the end of the tour, Robert said to me, oh, did I want to do the next album? And at the time, I was kind of... we. we that tour was kind of playing kind of small clubs mm-hmm. in the States. And um, Thompson Twins were sort of playing quite big places. They're quite successful. I was getting paid really well. So I was kind of in a quandary whether to, um, you know, w- which way to go. And so I thought I'd have a meeting with the Thompson Twins. And really, I'd, I was kind of thinking, I was more of a hired hand with them. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, you know, if I you know, if, if they're prepared to sort of give me more input in the band and be a p- part of it, um, then maybe I'd do that. But it, in a way, their manager did me a service because he said, before you meet the band, they were in Paris at the time, before you meet the band, mm. I want a meeting with you. So I said, OK. So I explained my case. And he said, OK. And then the band arrived. And he said to the band, to the rest of them, uh, so Boris has decided to leave, so we need <laughs> to get another drummer. I was like, that's not exactly what I said. <laughs> And I was kind of like, couldn't say anything. So I thought, shit. So I, I was driving home to London thinking what happened there. And then the more I thought about it, the more I felt released by the whole thing of not having to make a decision. So for, so I got back and then we did uh, did the Head on the Door uh, album, which ended up being quite well received and sold well. And... Um, so then Robert asked me to stay in the band. So, so it was uh, it was the right decision. So they kind of. The, oh, I want to go back a little bit before, if yeah. possible. But oh, but at that point, the Cure kind of took off much more. At that yeah. point, yeah, the Head on the Door was a, probably well up to that point the biggest selling album. Before that, mm-hmm. they were more of a cult mm-hmm. band, you know, and had a strong following. But it was, and then Head on the Door tour, we were playing. You know, from playing clubs, we were playing like arenas mm-hmm. and stuff. And then after that, you know, it kind of grew more and more. And well, a lot of people attribute that to, to your contributions. Well, I don't know about that. It's probably a, a mixture just <laughs> happened to be Robert's. Uh, I mean, all of Head on the Door was written by Robert Smith. Mm-hmm. So it's some really great songs on it. And after that, we did 
the next albums were more co-written together. Though mm -hmm. Robert would obviously write all the words, but um, we'd all kind of put music together and meet up, and then we'd we'd have scorecards where we'd give out of ten <laughs> marks for each song, um, and they weren't necessarily songs; they could be just sketches, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, then um, obviously Robert would have to decide which ones we'd go ahead with because he had to he had to sing on them. So yeah, it worked like that. So it was yeah. Well, going back a little bit, just to, yeah. to make that gap between, you know, pl playing drums on a gig that you never played before and playing, you know, arenas for one of you know one of the, yeah. the most influential bands, you know, certainly of the decade. Um, what did you spend? Was there a period of time where you spent crazy hours and woodshedding? I'm sure there must have been. I mean, and obviously you were playing tons of of gigs. Yeah, but there must have been a time that you. Or maybe not. Maybe I'm. I'm just assuming based on, um, but that that you really uh, bunkered down, and because because it's not just that you were playing on, on such a, a big level, but you're also your your playing is is so technically, um, you know, it's it's so solid and and has so much so much power, and that obviously it didn't come out of just 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 playing around here and there, yeah. here and a lot well, for over I years. Suppose yeah, I mean, in terms of um, your study, you know, in terms of technique, I wouldn't mm -hmm. say I was I was a technical player. I'm, I'm, I regard myself as a field player, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, kind of comes from the heart, really, mm. uh, more than the head. So, although obviously, you know, I'd work out parts and try and get you know some sort of geometry going in my playing, but um, I mean, there's a period, you know, where I was playing. Actually, I, I just kind of re-met up with, I hadn't seen a lot of the band for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, Roger O'Donnell is a keyboard player who, who I kind of got into the band in the first place. Um, and we used to play, we played in that cabaret outfit and, and uh, we played in, in, a, in a kind of jazz fusion band. So during that period, um, we were, you know, I was in, you know, I had, I bought every Billy Cobham album mm -hmm. he made, you know, I was really into mm -hmm. working out all his fills and stuff. So, so in terms of woodshedding, I suppose that period was when I looked at my technique and mm -hmm. tried to emulate, you know, really like things like Mahavishnu Orchestra and mm -hmm. things, bands like that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so that was a period where I kind of looked at technique. And when, when I joined the Thompson Twins, that that period was kind of just, uh, you know, after punk had happened. Right. And it was really looked down on anyone being technically good or anything. You had to sort of hide it, you right. know. <laughs> um, and in a sense, with a cure, it was the same sort of thing. It was, you know, the whole punk era thing of, of you, you know, um, self-indulgent musicianship mm -hmm. was kind of, was kicked out the door. So, um, so I, yeah, so I, that period I, I did kind of, but I'm I'm not I'm not that much of a, uh, you know I know Jason who plays with uh, Cure now, he apparently practices like eight hours a day or something <laughs> crazy all every day, um, and for me I, you know I've, I've never been like that mm -hmm. you know I get very bored with just doing I, I learn more with playing other musicians mm -hmm. you know so really playing live has been mostly your your education mostly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a different, it's it's a very different approach. I mean, when we were recording, um, a lot of it would be, I mean, we never used, we didn't use click tracks live, but in the studio, it was mm -hmm. always 
click tracks. And, you know, some of the time it would be just me and Simon, the bass player, laying down backing tracks and no other instruments, you know. So it was quite kind of clinical in some some cases. And we'd obviously play together mm -hmm. when we're doing the demos. And then it would be kind of dissected. And um, that's the way Robert liked it to be, you know. And to, so, um, so, yeah, it's a different approach, whereas live, it's, it's kind of... Um, more spontaneous in some ways, you know, yeah. as spontaneous as you can be. I mean, we would have sections in the songs that weren't, you know, we wouldn't, like if we were playing the song A Forest, mm -hmm. there'd be sections in it where it would be quite free for how long it would last and, mm -hmm. how, you know, how long there'd be um, self-indulgent guitar solos. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, so that, that whole period... I mean, there was definitely one of the major, besides the synthesizer kind of taking up digital synthesizers, taking over a lot of that sound, yeah. the drum sounds and, and a lot of the music you're associated with really was a lot of that, um, some of the more digital sounding. I, mean, I know you, I was just listening to some of your music and your snare sound. I mean, it's a classic 80s. It's yeah. like, I don't know, it's a gated, but even yeah. when you're playing live, it's this very echoey sharp sounds yeah. that was that how do you first time from break yes as an engineer just a, a drummer how um that that sound comes about is it some of the way you tune your snare combination with the yeah i think i think it's a, i think as you, you know being a drummer as well it's a lot you know you could play the same drum kit as somebody else and sound completely different it's yeah. how you play it how you hit it or something which just how you do it really but yeah it, there is i mean when you listen to 80s um drum sounds, mm -hmm. you can kind of recognize it yeah. straight away. And in fact, it's a lot of it's being used now because it's so popular yeah. again. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I suppose, yeah, I mean, I, I, was, I was kind of instinctive about how I tuned my drums. It was just kind of how it sounded, how I liked it to sound, you know, to me without uh, worrying too much about, you know, exactly, you know, is this, do I want the snare really tight or, you know, really Flat. It just kind of what feels right. Well, how did it work with with a lot of the? I mean, I guess there was electronic drums. I mean, the Thompson tunes was a lot of electronic drums. Uh, yeah, Thompson tunes was actually I was playing those um, Simmons drums, uh -huh. and they're horrendous to play. It would be a, it would be a a, um, a real snare drum was the only okay. kind of real drum, uh -huh. and even the bass drum was, and it was just you know in there's no kind of uh, variation. In sensitivity, oh, the no, kick no, drum would just be back, you know, have a, you know, whatever you do, and um, and I used to get frustrated because you couldn't, you know, if I was doing something with the bass drum, there's a, a little bit more more dynamic. Yeah. The softer tones wouldn't wouldn't come through at all, you right, know? Right. and um, and also it really did ha played havoc with your wrists because mm. you forget and you still want to hammer away, but right. they weren't the like the rubber pads; they were these kind of hard plastic. Yeah, shiny black plastic things which had no give in them at all. That happens when you you know play a, a piano with a lot of sensitivity and then yeah. play an organ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right after <laughs> yeah. you like want to hammer it, yeah. and you forget to yeah. <laughs> turn up the volume or nothing. So at least I had cymbals and a snare drum. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, so the, the so a lot of that sound was something that that. I guess was happening at the time, but obviously yeah. a lot of your contribution, because I, because now I'm sitting here with you, um, and I'm obviously having grown up a little bit in that era of just being, yeah. um, to separate 
one of the creators of that music from the the, the particular sounds that mm. came out of that era is like obviously I don't have a sense of, of where you came in and adopted some of those sounds that were that were like happening at the time or that you contributed to it I'm sure there's yeah, an overlap there I think there's an overlap um, I mean you know I mean in the studio obviously the production is kind of pushing to the, I mean the producer would never say oh can you change the tuning of the drums I mean mm-hmm. I mean um, we tried different things in the studio for instance there wouldn't be one drum set I mean when we were playing the Kiss Me album which we recorded in the south of France we had three separate drum kits mm. set up we had one small drum kit which was um, in a little booth completely soundproofed and absolutely dead mm. and that was on um, uh, on the single close to me which mm-hmm. is kind of um, that kind of dry, you know. We did the video, which we were all in a in a wardrobe, you know, <laughs> that kind of sound. And then we had a, um, a one of the drum kits in this kind of concrete room on a big kind of riser, and it was so loud. It was just definitely anyone who came in while I was working out a part would go, go <laughs> run out screaming because it was just too. I mean, too loud. So that. So there's that, and then there was another kit which was um, uh, just uh, the regular kit I use, which was kind of in in a wood room. So we, you know, depending on the song, would be depending what what kit I'd use. So it wouldn't be one drum sound on on record, but um, I suppose live, you know, with the engineers would kind of adapt things according to the songs to, you know, whether it's, it's really gated or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. So of the, I guess you were, you were, there were four. Cure Studio albums that you were majorly yeah, part of. Or, yeah. Which one? Which ones you stick out, stand out to you as? I, th- I mean, uh, a Kiss Me album. Kiss Me album was kind of a, a, a bit of a grueler because it was a double album, mm-hmm. and we probably actually recorded thirty songs or more, um, and. Uh, and we did. We, the pro, it felt a bit like a production line after a bit because we were just doing. We decided to start off just doing backing tracks, mm-hmm. so it was all drums all the time, every day. <laughs> and I remember after a few weeks, I I was doing some cymbal overdubs, and I started getting flashing lights in my eyes, and I, I was thinking, God, what's going on then? And I, I'd I'd never had a migraine. I didn't realise that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Luckily the it was quite early in the evening. It was probably only about nine or ten, and which for us is really early because we'd start later and later. But mm. um, the producer would say, oh, "Why don't we um, give it, you know have a break tonight?" And you know, so I kind of went to my bed and sort of lay there, and it got worse until my you know head started oh, feeling wow. like it was exploding, and it just carried on all night. And um, then I realised it was a migraine, so I kind of said, "Can we?" Um, do a few overdubs on those tracks and give you because it was just too much one after the other so that was kind of a quite an experience but I, um, I mean the head on the door was was the first album I played with them and it, it was it just felt really kind of light doing it we had so much fun mm. doing it um, we um, we were recording in in a studio called Angel Studios in in North London, and um, I remember we, it it had a, a really big play playing area. We set up a a scale extric uh, 
race track <laughs> or covering the whole thing. Um, so in breaks, we'd all, we'd all get our, everyone would sort of make their, their cars slightly, you know, different bending bits or burning bits off and stuff. And so, uh, so it was kind of a fun, fun album to do. Um, but I, I suppose disintegration was the kind of, in a way for me, the deepest experience. It was really involving, you know, mm. we all felt very kind of in there for that. And um, uh, we were you able to, to screen out, I guess it probably was since there were some hits and there might have been record company pressure. Did you feel that or were you able to block as a band block that out creatively? We're really lucky in that um, I suppose the arrangement with the record company was that, I mean, they weren't allowed to go into the studio mm. while recording and they, they accepted that. I suppose we're in a position where when we signed with them, they accepted that. Um, so we didn't feel pressurized by that, you know, and, and we, you know, even in terms of how long we were recording in the studio, it was always far too long, really. We were just, you know, spending so much time recording. So we, we did have the, the label head, who um, Chris Parry, who was um, Fiction Records label head, when we were doing um, uh, the, the, the Kiss Me album in the south of France, he, um, he, he was a keen uh, yachtsman. Mm -hmm. So he decided to take, he's from New Zealand originally, decided to um, sail to New Zealand and he stopped off in the south of France to see how we're getting on. We'd been probably recording for two or three weeks and we always kind of playing pranks on him. And anyway, he, he decided to go and see how we, so we thought he's coming up. So we recorded really quickly, <laughs> like maybe three, three songs <clears throat> and made them slightly out of time, out of, out of tune and everything. <laughs> and sat him down in the studio and he said, so how are you, you know, how's it going? I said, well, these are the most kind of complete things we've got. And he'd sit there trying to keep a smile going, trying to tap his foot to it. Going, and then it was like, yeah, okay. So, and he was looking more and more worried the more he listened. And they eventually told him, he said, oh, you bastards. You know. <laughs> so. By the way, <laughs> that's probably the meanest thing you could do to him. It really he is, yeah. Totally invested in yeah. the success of So, you, between playing live and, um, I guess in general, I mean, because obviously, I mean, obviously there's a big chunk of your career was you were in The Cure. Yeah. Um, but you have you did a lot of other. I mean, you did many other projects. When you're in the Cure, were you totally dedicated? To I, the I, Cure? I I did um, a few other projects, not that really that many. I played with um, a singer. I, I don't know how well she, well known she is over here, called Kim Wilde, mm. who had hits and uh, she had a, a, a hit called Kids in America. Yeah, yeah, that was huge. Yeah. <coughs> so I, I, I didn't record with her, but I did some tours with her in Europe and stuff, which was fun. Um, and um, uh, I, and I did an album with Ian McCulloch from Echo and the Bunnymen, mm. and I uh, got really friendly with, with him. We hung out a bit, but um, I didn't do a lot of uh, outside, while I was in the queue, I didn't do a lot of outside sessions. Well, it seems like, like I guess, in contrast to what you're saying about the Thompson twins, that you were hired, yeah, gone. So, really, Robert Smith really created. Was it was it kind of he, he that created a more ensemble, uh, uh, band feeling with with the Cure? Yeah, I mean, were yeah. you included also 
in other contracts and everything like that? You weren't, you didn't feel like just a hired person? No, I didn't feel, we, yeah, we didn't, we kind of, uh, you know, in terms of publishing, it was um, split that, hmm. that Robert would have 50%, which is words and lyrics, same thing. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the other 50% uh, would be uh, split uh, between all of us for music, which I thought was pretty fair, really, mm -hmm. being a drummer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I'd, the way I'd, I worked with Paul Thompson, um, who's now Pearl Thompson, uh, we'd get together at his house and create uh, stuff together. And, you know, you're saying about the sort of... Uh, the, the idea with the sitars and stuff, mm -hmm. you know, kind of came out of some of the tunes came out of that working with him. Um, so it was kind of, yeah, it's, it was, it definitely felt like a, a band ensemble. So then the one, if you know what I'm asking, so what happened that you ended up, that it, you know, the band that, continued, obviously. Yeah, that I ended up leaving. That's a difficult uh, question to answer, really, because I don't fully you know, have an answer for it in that, you know, everything was um, musically and um, in terms of relationships, you know, I was really happy with it. Um, but I just, so, you know, so, something really changed in me where I thought I need to go and be doing something different. And um, so it was kind of, yeah, it was... Um, it was difficult to explain at the time. I, you know, I spoke to Robert and said I wanted to leave. And he said, well, what are you going to do? And all I could, th could think of saying was, um, I, I want to learn to play tablas. <laughs> and as it turned out, I did mm -hmm. end up um, taking some lessons from um, from a, an Indian tabla player from uh, uh, who's living in, um, in Bristol. And... Uh, and he, he was he was a classical uh, player and very strict about only I, I wanted to learn all the tricks, all mm -hmm. the nice sounds, you know, <laughs> kind of beats. But he wouldn't let you do that. He you started to, you from the... Yeah, you had to sort of <laughs> recite all the they don't have written music as such. Um but uh so anyway, yes, yeah, so I, I I did that, but it's yeah, it's difficult to to really explain why I I left, but I just felt I needed to at the time for kind of a did you did you see the was there ever a point where you felt like I mean you obviously you were involved with a lot of music at that point also yeah well I was you I know. was um, I was playing with a band called Shelley and Orphan who was opening for us mm -hmm. in America and Europe um, and because uh, what happened there was at the end of a tour they were about to go in the studio and their drummer um, they were they were signed to Rough Trade Records. Their drummer sort of demanded from the record company, "I won't do the album unless I get paid so much, such and such." Mm -hmm. And uh, I th they didn't have that kind of money, or they didn't want to pay that kind of money. In fact, I think Rough Trade were having pro financial problems at the time, and uh, he said, "I won't do it un unless." And um, so they, so Caroline Crawley and um, Jem Tail from Shelley and Orphan were, "God, what are we going to do?" And I said, "I'll do it," you know. So. We hadn't had any rehearsals, and the, the studio was booked literally two days later. So we just turned up there and worked through, through it in the studio, and it was actually, you know, it worked out well. So what what has been uh, some highlights? What, what have you been up to musically or otherwise? Since uh, then. Since then, yeah. 
Well, it's kind of a pretty small scale. I mean, I, I play with some musicians. As I've got kind of, at the moment, it's kind of two bands uh, running in southwest France. Um, but really, they're kind of, you know, playing locally. And I still work with Gemtail from Shelley and Orphan. Um, he's uh, writing a, a new album. And um, so we, we're kind of, most of it is being done long distance because he lives in, in England. Um, so we sent, he sends me songs and I sort of lay drums on and say, what do you think of that? And he says, try harder. <laughs> no, it's, it's in, but, um, and then we get together in England um, with uh, Charlie Jones, bass player, who plays with Goldfrapp, who's a really good bass player and it's great to play with. Um, and uh, he, uh, he played on, on the last Shelley and Orphan album as well. So that's kind of something that's about to happen. We've been having lots of, we're supposed to be recording in Italy and it's fallen through three yeah. times this studio so for one reason or another. So, but it's still on the... On but you say, you I mean, you're active, obviously, do you play regularly or, I mean, um, you have said two different bands. Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't play regularly in terms of playing lots of gigs. Mm -hmm. But I've I've got a studio at home, and musicians come and we play and work out stuff. And so there's so I'm I'm doing something with with Greg Weiss from Tilden mm -hmm. Krauts, and and Gabby. Um, it's a new project. I mean, their their stuff is kind of I suppose you call it Americana mm -hmm. stuff, and this is not called Tilden Krauts, it's called Krauts. <laughs> and it's kind of more more pop or rock oriented. Um, so we've been just working songs, their songs, you know. So there's different things you're working on that have yet to be released? Yeah. What, what, yeah. Anything recently that you've done that, that's, uh, that's been released or that's... No, not, not really. No, I've, I've been um, living quite a sheltered life. Yeah, in, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> in the south of France. You yeah, yeah. We were, I was talking with... Uh, with my wife, we were talking about different places in the world where people feel more ambition or less ambition. Talking about how New York is a place where there's the heavy yeah, yeah, ambition. Yeah. There's other other places. I, I can imagine South of France is one of those places yeah. where you can well, just kind it, of kick back. And, it's not even South France. It's Southwest France, which okay. is even more, even, more even so. less ambitious an area. It's it's very rural. It's kind of um, all farmland and mm. stuff. Must be and, beautiful um, there. It is beautiful there. It's, yeah. And um, so yeah, I mean, I, I've. Um, I, I mean, I, I was kind of I, I, the other day, the other evening after this um, awards thing, I was talking to Robert and he was saying, you know, well, you should be doing more. You should be like Budgie from Susie and the Banshees. It's <laughs> like, you know, and I, I just said to him, Look, I, to be quite honest, I'm not really that driven because mm -hmm. the things that um, opportunities that have come around for me have been uh, where they've they've just come to me, mm -hmm. you know, like I was asked to do this or, asked, you know, people put me forward. Uh -huh. I've never been a big one to push me. Look, I want to, you know, you've got to use me. I'm, I'm the best or anything because I just don't feel like that. Uh -huh. So. Um, Has there ever, ever been a point in your career earlier where you felt like you had to hustle for gigs or really it, it kind of came to you throughout just by doing it and then. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I know I, there were to, I, I used to play with this bass player who is he was the opposite of me is really keen. He dragged me along to auditions and you'd, you'd turn up at some studio and there'd be a corridor with, with like 10 drummers all 
banging away on their, on their <laughs> knees with their drumsticks and you'd kind of be in a line in, in that. And uh, um, I think we went to one which is Man From Man's Earth Band and it was just, I didn't want to do it anyway. Yeah. And it was very intimidating. Um, so you go in there, play two songs, and then they go next, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I mean, I was imagining now that you tell the story, and it's, it's you're just very fortuitous you happen to be in the right place. When yeah. I asked you, but there was no, I mean, I guess when you joined the Thompson Twins, they also weren't yet, or, or were, were they already had hits? And Well, the feel... Thompson Twins were like, they, they were kind of a, a seven-piece, kind of semi-hippie band. Mm-hmm. And then the three main people in it decided to break away and become this kind of uh, pop band, you know, mm-hmm. 80s, typical 80s pop band. And um, so, I mean, they, it basically everything was, your drums were programmed, everything was, right. pro- bass was programmed and keyboards. And um, so they really wanted a live, you know, drummer, mm-hmm. um, but not too live, no. And, uh, <laughs> Have to keep it and, on the tape. Yeah. And so in the studio, the only thing I'd do would be like I'd be overdubbing cymbals and right. hi hats just to give it a bit of a kind of reality. Um, so yeah. So just reflect. I mean, it's a, that's an amazing thing that that you know because I guess it, meeting you if it's a, your personality that that you kind of go with the flow and then you end up contributing a lot, but without having. I mean, it's also I think it maybe it, it parallels your drumming style as well. Like you, yeah. Um, that it it. And it's probably a very good quality for a drummer who's who's there, supportive, but also is, is adding a lot of um, texture and adding a lot of yeah. Well, I think healing. my my drumming style really is kind of a reflection on the music, mm-hmm. you know. And that it's not I, I haven't just sort of imposed what something it's, it's going to you know I mm-hmm. do this and it's going to work with with the I mean with the Cure what I what I do with what I did with the Cure is different to what I did with the Thompson Twins and what I've done with other bands because I kind of try and work out what what works with it. And I suppose, you know, with The Cure, because when I joined them to start with, to finish the their, the top two, I was just playing all the, their back catalogue. Mm-hmm. So obviously that influenced me as to, as to how to move on, keep it, you know, keep that, that thread going throughout. You know, really finding that rhythmic. balance between your own voice and yeah what's and what's gone before yeah. yeah and what's yeah and yeah and what's going on around me the influence of the the songs and how they played you know i mean i think uh, robert's style of playing guitar is kind of unique and you know it i play off that a lot you know and obviously his vocal style as well have you gotten kind of feedback i, I know my wife was kind of telling me about her experience and i know this has been very common among let's say like a certain subsection of teenagers yeah. who look to you know the cure as as you know extremely cathartic you know getting yeah. got them through difficult times yeah, I mean, yeah. Is that alone that, in their bedroom with the lights dim yeah. sort of thing yeah so, is that something that that how do you see that from where you sit and being a creator of that that music um do you, you meet i'm sure you meet a lot of people who have been affected by, yeah. by the music which were you kind of aware of that as it as it was being created i mean i yeah, I mean, be aware of it because um, I remember. Well, I remember, for instance, the you know when we go off on a tour on the tour bus, we'd we'd get a sack full of of fan mail, and we'd so we'd all be opening letters, and and some of it was pretty kind of out there, and that you know you get letters written by somebody, and it's all written in blood, you know, and that, <laughs> yeah. because they think that's oh you're a goth band, you you, you know it needs to be like that, you know, 
but um, yeah, but actually, you know, I, th I think the image of the band was that, you know, we're all kind of quite serious and kind of, you know, reflective on everything. And actually we were like a bunch of kids some mm -hmm. of the time, you know, a lot of the time we'd, it'd be, um, we'd just, you know, be having a laugh. But did you, did you feel like there was, the music had a certain persona? I mean, you obviously you had your personalities and it sounds yeah. like there's a lot of fun, the, the, the cars and, you know, you yeah. could kind of have fun and you have a different personality kind of off the stage, but the, did you feel like having to live, live up to that or just kind of was a natural, just the way I think the band it was, I think it was unfolded. natural and I also think it, I suppose the music being how it was, although it's difficult to say that the music was dark or anything because a lot of the single stuff, you mm -hmm. know, is quite, is quite light, mm -hmm. you know, but I suppose some of it's pretty intense. So I think it makes you, you, you need something to, uh, bounce off that hmm. which is kind of childish humor <laughs> <laughs> so you're in you're in town now for the, the um rock and roll hall of fame well, induction yeah. so how, how was that that was just that was pretty surreal actually <laughs> it, on on several levels i mean i i was just reading that um uh robert's interview sort of went viral and sort of had eight eight million views because this very excited um, interviewer sort of said, oh yeah, this is amazing, are you as excited as I am? And he replied, um, apparently not, you know, <laughs> which I think he got a bit of flack for, for saying, but I don't think he was being mean, I think he was just being genuine, right. genuine about it. So, um, and it was kind of surreal in that, for me, I, you know, I've been out of the band a, a, a huge number of years now, you know, mm -hmm. more than I was in it. And, um, and sort of, also to see the band playing, which I've done, I've been to a few few gigs, but I kind of, I, I it's, you know, people always ask me, it's the most common question is, you know, do you miss it? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't actually enter into my mind. Mm. So obviously I don't in the sense of, I don't think I wish I was doing that. But the only time I get near to that is when I see them play. And I see Jason mm -hmm. up there and thinking I should be up there, <laughs> you know, especially when they're playing songs that I was, you know, parts that I was playing. But um, so then, then to get up on stage to sort of receive the award with you know um, stream of us ten of ten members, including the ex members, you know, up there. it's kind of it's kind of strange. But I was kind of um, I was I was uh, quite kind of stressed out about the whole process and, mm. and unsure whether I really wanted to go. Um, and uh, and I I think at one point Robert. And the existing band was, and Simon, existing band, weren't sure if they were going to go. And I said to Robert, you know, if you don't go, I'm not going to go because it's going to be really weird, <laughs> just the ex-members turning up. So anyway, he, you know, they decided they're going to go, and so we went along with it. So it, so it ended up better than I expected mm. it to be, and and um, with a bonus of being able to stay on in in New York and Brooklyn, and really sort of. Um, have a bit of a visit. And then I, I get to meet you in the... Yeah. <laughs> and I circle. get a t-shirt. You get a t-shirt. Brooklyn Jazz Warriors t-shirt. Yeah. I'm very pleased. It, uh, Boris, this is, I really appreciate your time. Yeah. This has you're been welcome. really fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, and thanks for the album and the t-shirt. I look forward to listening to it on, in, on vinyl. Yeah. My pleasure. And I look forward to, you know, whatever music you release and uh, we, you know, wish you a lot of uh, yeah. success and health and enjoy. Great. Thanks very much.
enjoying our interview with Boris Williams. Uh, check out his discography in the session notes. Besides the albums he did with The Cure, he's been a part of, of a lot of great music over the years. And thank you again to Boris for taking the time uh, to give the interview and for, <laughs> for reaching out. Um, it was, again, one of those unexpected things that really was a kind of a positive feedback and fortuitous happening, which seems to fit in with his M.O. Somehow meeting him and his story just kind of gives me the inspiration to continue a little bit more to let go and let the music flow, which could be a, another tagline of this podcast. Um, so, of course, you can sign up for our mailing list at soundheightsrecords.com and check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash soundheightsrecords. We have new music releases coming out pretty often, so stay up to date on that. And as usual, remember, with abundant singing and playing of music, we bring about the true and complete redemption. See you next time. <laughs>